This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles. This is the finish line. The Stanford Racing Team has made its way into the history books. But the most important thing for me is, uh, it actually doesn't matter who comes first. It matters that we as a, as a community achieve it. Early in a technology, uh, a thousand flowers should bloom. Welcome back to season two of Smarter Cars. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. In this episode, we talk with Warren Logan, Senior Transportation Planner at the San Francisco County Transportation Authority, or SFCTA, and we discuss his thoughts on regulation of emerging mobility companies in San Francisco, including TNCs and scooters, and how industry can work collaboratively with city government. Warren, welcome to the show. Hi, it's so great to be here. Terrific. Can you explain for folks who don't know what the SFCTA does and how it differs from the SFMTA? Absolutely. Um, I'm very happy to work here at the SFCTA, and um, our major goal for the county of transfer, or excuse me, the county of San Francisco, is to plan, fund, and deliver uh, major capital improvements for the people who live and work and play here in San Francisco. We have a couple of different roles. Um, the first is that we program sales tax dollars and a couple of other state funds for capital improvements in the city. Um, I sit in the planning group. We are primarily focused on long-range planning, so what does transportation look like in San Francisco for the next 50 years, and then delivering major capital improvements like subway lines and um, transit hubs, et cetera, in San Francisco. Um, unlike uh, the SFMTA, we don't run services like Muni. We are also not BART, um, and just as a point of comparison, we have about 45 staff members to SFMTA's, I think, 6,000 staff. So we're a much smaller agency, but we're mighty. Okay. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you have, and you have some funds, so that's good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so um, in July of this year, uh, the SFCTA published a report titled Emerging Mobility Evaluation Report. Can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of this report and, and the work that uh, you did going into it, what, what your goals were, and, and what kind of uh, emerging mobility you were looking at? Absolutely. Um, you know, this report started really two, almost two years ago now. Um, our, our Board of Supervisors, which also serves as the uh, Transportation Authority Commissioners, um, had noticed, as well as a lot of other people around here, that a lot of new, um, I call them toys, were out on the, on the streets and on the sidewalks. And they said, hey, you know, I don't really know, um, you know, what these services are up to, like car sharing or bike sharing or uh, what we call TNCs, which are really uh, ride-hailing services um, or even micro-shuttles. And they said, we want to understand how any one of these services are helping the city meet its transportation goals, both short-term and long-term, and how we can work together to ideally, you know, reduce the number of single occupancy vehicle trips and, you know, plan for a safer and more vibrant future for San Francisco. And so I set out to uh, do exactly that, which I won't say was easy. Um, the first step, in fact, was reaching out to the different companies and understanding what their missions were. Um, San Francisco is this wonderful place where we have a lot of innovators, but sometimes they are hard to contact and say, hey, meet with me. Um, so that was maybe the first step. Um, the second one was to develop these guiding principles, which are our framework around how we approach the larger emerging mobility sector. And then finally, as you see here, evaluating how all of these different services are meeting those guiding principles. What are, what are some of the, the guiding principles that San Francisco came up with in terms of the, the lens that you're, you're looking at emerging mobility through? Yeah, so there's 10 guiding principles. Um, we developed each of these based on existing transportation policies, um, existing San Francisco plans uh, and strategies. And what was interesting was that we, we and our team uh, reached out to advocacy groups, other city agencies, regional partners, community stakeholders, and in fact the um, emerging mobility sector themselves and said, what are, what are we trying to get at with this group? What, are, what do we need to do to work together? And one of the things I'm really proud of is that um, we had originally had nine guiding principles for what the, the city and county of San Francisco wanted from 
the emerging mobility sector. You know, we want them to commit to being safer and to create a, um, a more safe environment. We want them to help support our transit first principle and to reduce, you know, greenhouse gas emissions um, and also bridge equity gaps. What was interesting, though, is that when we reached out to the companies, they said, well, we should work together. We should understand each other, not just you to us. And so they helped us actually create the collaboration principle. And I think that was the, the first step towards building um, a really wonderful relationship, both with the city, our stakeholders, and in fact, the companies themselves. Well, I will put a link in the show notes to the report. Um, encourage everyone to read it. Uh, it's it's quite, <laughs> quite lengthy, quite detailed, and it does go through each of these 10 guiding principles and and the work you did in, in looking at the emerging mobility services and how they um, intersect with these principles. Uh, but since we only have a short time today, maybe we could... Uh, talk about some of the key takeaways from the report, the conclusions, and and some of the policy recommendations. Um, one of the uh, evaluation results uh, that you came to was the idea that pilots and permits lead to better performance. And I think we all know that there have been a number of pilots and permit programs around emerging mobility. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found in in your work and then perhaps uh, some of the recommendations that flowed from that? So one of the things we found, I worked really closely with the SFMTA's permitting staff, and we found that the companies and the, the service types, I'll call them, that we performed pilot programs with and then ultimately provided permits to those services really helped guide the individual actors towards our shared goals for transportation. And I'll use a couple of examples here. Um, A while ago, the city um, provided a pilot permit for a company called Scoot. They offer shared um, electric mopeds throughout the city. You might have seen them, they're red. And we worked very closely with them and helped craft a parking policy and identified what kind of data and metrics we were looking for so that we knew what success would look like as we co-created this final um, permit system for them. And that's just one example of how, you know, the companies can work together with us towards this, like, shared vision of, like, reducing single occupancy vehicle trips while also increasing customer choice in, like, the mobility sector. Um, Another option that I'd like to highlight, too, though, is, like, bike sharing, or even chariot most recently, where we were able to work with, um, you know, what was then Bay Area Bike Share, and then later on for Go Bike and Motivate, um, to develop, you know, a framework around bike sharing and a dock standpoint, and then also with chariot, which um, operates a microtransit service in San Francisco. And, And with both of these, we said, how do we make sure that we are getting people to transit and helping people reduce congestion in our densest areas. And both of those partners were really great at helping us do exactly that. In terms of the uh, recommendations for this area, though, one of the things we found was that as new, interesting, innovative services come online, we have to recreate the wheel sometimes and say, oh, I guess we need to create a pilot for this, and then ultimately we need to create a permitting system. So the first recommendation is, in fact, partner which calls both the city and the companies to do just that, partner together, work collaboratively together, and develop a framework for the future pilots so that, let's say, for example, you know, a service or a technology that comes out you know, in the next 6 to 12 months that we don't know about yet, we have a better roadmap for how we can you know, work with those companies, develop a, a runway um, for piloting with them, understanding what kinds of questions we want to answer, and then finally creating a permit structure for them so that they can fit really well in this ecosystem together. And how do you um, come up with a pilot and ultimately a permit system if a company has not launched a particular type of product in the city? In other words, so that the company has some operational experience to tell you, here are some of the issues, or here's how we can mitigate some of the problems. Um, how do you know? I, you know, I think with Chariot, uh, they were operating before you um, have the pilot program with them, and so perhaps you had 
some operational experience with them to understand what the challenges were going to be. But it seems like a little bit tricky for both sides to really know like what the rules should be until you actually try something. So how do you manage that? I think that's right in a lot of ways, but especially the last thing you said. How do we know together, though, is the really critical element. Um, you know, one of the challenges that San Francisco, and by extension, I think most major cities and even medium and small size cities at this point are facing is this what's called like con uh, disruptive culture, which is like how can companies launch on our streets or sidewalks even these services and, and then not share that information with, with government? Um, I think that's really a touch point that you know, my office and, and the SFMTA are really working towards is, is creating these more trustful relationships with emerging mobility partners so that we can in fact create an environment where they feel safe to test in our city while also providing good data to you know, the SFCTA and the SFMTA and our board so that we understand together what success looks like. Um, I've heard a lot of people share, hey, you know, exactly as you've said, how do, we, um, how do we know what's going to work until we test it? I hear that for sure. Um, on the other hand, you know, our challenge um, as, you know, your um, government officials is that we want to make sure that no one is hurt in the process of that testing period and that, you know, people are, are sharing in this vision of success together and not just one group of people. Um, and so I think that's, that's one of the places that we just need to work together on. But to answer your question more directly, one of the things that we also learned from this process is that our agency, and more broadly, cities in general, need to do, I think, a better job of reaching out to the companies on a more regular basis before they've launched services and say, hey, what are you thinking about? How can we work together so that we get a better idea of what their future work might look like as a heads up instead of, perhaps responding to things as they come each day. Yeah, I think um, I saw that one of your recommendations involved something about a, a public-private emerging mobility task force. Is that the kind of forum you have in mind where, where these issues could be uh, vetted? You're exactly right. And um, in fact, several different agencies in the city and county of San Francisco are working together right now to understand from um, from the government side, you know, how do we set up a, a front door and a, I don't know if it's a committee or a workforce or a work group, working group that's tasked with um, reaching out to the companies ahead of time, keeping tabs on them, and, and developing these better business relationships with them. So that's, um, in fact, in the process right now. Yeah, it's, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this more a little bit later when we get to, to scooters, um, but I, I do think one of the challenges for companies is... Um, you know, looking at pilots and permits and, um, you know, saying to themselves, well, if I look at what's out there today, it's very limited. And if I want to come up with my new mobility solution, you know, is the city going to um, make me wait six months or a year or, you know, only let me put uh, a few uh, devices out there, things like that. So I, I think um, part of the concern on, on the part of the industry is, you know, innovation has to happen on a certain time frame. Companies, you know, will die if they don't, you know, make certain progress. So there's always kind of that that push on the industry side if they're going to have a viable company and a viable product of trying to learn and iterate and, and move forward. And so I think one of the challenges from the industry side is, um, you know, what, what sense can they get from the government that they're not just going to be shut down? I think that's a great point, Michelle. Um, and I think one of the things that both myself and, and my colleague Danielle Harris and I learned during this work is that, like, that there's a lot of trust that needs to be built between both our agencies, the city, and, and both existing companies and even future companies that we're not just in the business of regulating um, other industries or even, as I've, I've been told, unfortunately, regulating businesses out of existence. That's not our goal. But at the same time, one of the challenges that I think we face especially is making sure that people don't get hurt. You know, it's our job to ensure that safety is paramount on our streets, and that has to come first. Um, and, and so while I totally respect companies who want to innovate, and I think that's fantastic, um, I respectfully encourage those companies to do so while maintaining a safe 
an equitable environment in our city. Right. Okay. Uh, let's let's move on to um, a, a second point in your report, which was really the city's conclusion that it doesn't have adequate data from emerging mobility providers in order to assess whether these services are really meeting the city's guiding principles. And I know this has been a big issue in the city's relationship with TNCs, which it, you know, it doesn't regulate. Um, what, what has the city's approach been to data thus far? And what are your thoughts about the future and recommendations in the report for, for how that appro- approach might change? Yeah, um, so our agency, the SFCTA, manages this fantastic model called SF Champ, And what it does is it actually is able to model out travel behavior in our county of San Francisco. And it's a really great tool for us to understand both travel behavior and how different um, policies or capital improvements might be affected by, you know, these winds of change, if you will. So I think that on one hand, we're very good stewards of data and understanding how to crunch those numbers to understand, like, our best guess of the future for, let's say, 50 years from now. On the other hand, and this is sort of the two-prong approach, is that I think these emerging mobility companies are collecting a vast amount of new and fantastic data about their users and about other travel behaviors that we don't have. And so our call has been repeatedly to partner with these companies so that they can share data with us that we, you know, can use to better understand travel behavior. Um, you hit the nail right on the head, though, that some of these companies we don't, in fact, regulate. And I'll say, you know, Uber and Lyft is regulated by the California Public Utilities Commission. And one of the challenges there is that the state receives um, all of the travel behavior data from Uber and Lyft, but then that data is not shared back to the cities that might, in fact, be impacted by some of these services. And so um, one of the challenges there, then, of course, is that we might, like it says in the report, not have adequate amounts of data for us to make really sound decisions about the capital improvements that we want to invest in or the policies that we want to pursue. Um, I use a really good example here is um, BART recently, not that recently, but about a decade ago, uh, expanded to San Francisco Airport. And I think that's a tremendous um, boon for BART. I've taken BART to the airport plenty of times. But the challenge there, though, is that now SFO is seeing an undercut in their ridership to BART because, or excuse me, to the BART's there because, um, you know, TNCs are tracking upwards tremendously month over month. And so the question then becomes, well, is, was that a poor investment if we would have known sooner, right? And so one of the things that we're doing to address this issue is to collect even better data. We've partnered with um, the regional planning group, which is called MTC, the Metropolitan Transportation Commission, to um, actually go out and ask people if they're willing to share um, the data from their phone and download an app to tell us ha- what their travel behavior is so that that way we don't just collect, you know, your nine to five commute trip, but also all of the little trips that you might share with us about walking and bicycling and, and scootering and TNCs and telling us then, like, why is it that you've chosen this mode over that mode? Ideally, at the end of this process, we'll be able to make really fantastic decisions based on that data. And that's, um, that's my hope for the future, really. Yeah, um, you know, it's an interesting point about the airport. And, you know, sometimes you just don't know that new innovations are going to come. I mean, that's the essence of disruption. And the people who bought taxi medallions in New York and and other cities uh, got disrupted. And, you know, it may be that people prefer, you know, when possible to take a TNC to the airport I mean, does that mean that you should, you know, somehow destroy that option for people just because the city made an investment in, you know, in BART? I mean, I think it's it's kind of an interesting point that we can't always predict, you know, some great new innovation comes along and it might be something that people prefer. How do, how do you think about that? I mean, is the capital investment and somehow, you know, pres- I, I, I saw some reference in the report to preserving capital investments, but... There might be some times where, you know, innovation just overcomes the existing infrastructure. And that, that may totally be true. And I'm, I'm looking forward to exactly that. I recognize, and I'm sure 
lots of other public agencies recognize that capital improvements are extremely expensive, and I am in the business of making sure that our tax dollars are being spent really wisely. Um, the other challenge, though, and I think this is the special um, part about the SFCTA, is that we are also tasked with managing the county's congestion management program. And so um, when you think about TNCs specifically, one of the challenges with that service is that, you know, you might hop in a car that comes right to your door or to, you know, the curbside or whatever, and it takes you exactly where you want to be. That's extremely convenient, and I'm not saying it isn't. Like, I've used TNC services plenty of times, and I can tell you that they are convenient. The challenge, though, is that on the other end of either my getting picked up or dropped off, there's a lot of deadhead miles associated with that trip. And so what ends up happening is that there are way more vehicles and way more vehicle miles traveled on our roadways. And so when I get a call from, you know, the supervisors or from, you know, everyday people living in San Francisco or working in San Francisco who say, hey, I'm noticing that congestion is getting worse and worse in the city. What are you doing about it? I have to respond to that um, with sound planning. And so um, on, on one hand, I totally respect that people might find these services more convenient. And on the other hand, we need to be responsible about how these services are being used and, and in terms of the government side, like making sure that we are regulating in a proactive way so that we're not um, seeing other goals not being met, like our congestion management goals, like our sustainability goals, um, and our safety goals. Right. And so um, you mentioned with this MTC app, um, trying to sort of collect data more directly from people, which is uh, an interesting idea. Um, I noticed another recommendation in your report was uh, about perhaps piloting a, a third-party data collaborative where a party other than the city would collect uh, some of the data that uh, perhaps from either from consumers or from emerging mobility companies themselves and, and kind of hold that in a third party as opposed to it coming directly to the government. Can you talk a little bit about that and what, what some of the issues are there? I'm happy to. Um, one of the challenges that the company shared with us, you know, is that several companies said, hey, we'd have, we are happy to share data with you, but we're concerned that, um, you know, because of sunshine rules or what have you, you know, some of the user privacy issues come up. And so I've seen in a couple of other cities, uh, these companies, emerging mobility companies, will share their trip data with a private uh, other company, like let's say in this case UC Berkeley might act as the, the middle man for this. I'll share the, the data with um, a university, their team will aggregate the information, and then, you know, the government groups might say, okay, please share with us, you know, these kinds of metrics or, you know, aggregate it in this way so that we can answer these kinds of questions, and then um, we get the answers that we might need. Um, but I think that the issue here is, again, sort of about trust, and, and so while it is not a preferred model to use, like, third-party data collaboratives, I understand that there is a bit of trust that still needs to be built, and so, you know, we're working on it. I, it, it seems like the data piece of it really goes beyond trust. I mean, you mentioned Sunshine Laws. I think you're referring to FOIA. Um, That's right. And so under the Freedom of Information Act, um, ordinary people, reporters, and other people can gain access to information that the government has and so if you collect data, um, you know, other people can get it. And so I, I certainly understand when there's only one or two providers in an emerging mobility service, they're thinking, okay, well, all we have to do is get all the data from the city, subtract out our data, and we'll be able to see our competitors' <laughs> data. Woohoo! You know, <laughs> um, yeah. that, that seems tough. It seems like a tough sell. Um, how do you guys react to that? I mean, how, I mean that it doesn't, I don't see how you get around that unless you're somehow going to get an exemption from FOIA. Right. Um, you know, I think there are three reasons why companies don't want to share data with us. The first is what you just touched on, which is in the case of Uber and Lyft specifically, it's a duopoly. So if you subtract your number from the larger number, you know what your competitor's mm -hmm. market share is. And that's, you know, I understand how business works. You wouldn't want to share your, you know, secrets with your competitors, for sure. Um, the second side of this is that, and I definitely respect this point very well, that people's travel behavior says a lot about who they are and that we need to be very cautious about 
how that information is used and aggregated and, and then redistributed or, or um, what's called the derivative product is developed from that information. So, you know, if, if you see my travel behavior on a map, you'll know roughly where I live and where I work and, you know, who I visit, et cetera. And so some people might not be comfortable with that. Of course, there are plenty of very great ways that have been industry standards for decades about how to, you know, you know, keep that information secret and also um, obfuscate that information so that it can't even be released in the first place. I think the third issue, though, and, and perhaps this is the more important one that people don't like to admit to, is that companies don't want to share their data, I believe, with the government because they're concerned that they're going to be regulated. And on one hand, I respect that. On the other hand, I think that it goes in the face of a lot of talking points that I've heard, which is that if you're good for the city, wouldn't you want to demonstrate how great you are for the city, right? Um, the companies that I worked with that were very happy to share data with us um, are listed in this, in this document. You can see where there are lots of question marks under the TNC columns of our evaluation tables, whereas for microtransit or chariot or for bike sharing or for car sharing, we have a lot more information. And that's because it seems to me, at least from this evaluation, that they are, you know, more in line with our guiding principles. Um, and it remains to be seen with good, sound data whether or not that's true for some of these other services. And I, again, sort of extend my welcome to any one of these companies to share their data with us to prove that they are, you know, doing the wonderful things they say they are. Well, to be fair, the services that are providing data are also regulated by the city where the TNCs are not, right? So it's it may not be as right. vo a voluntary of a choice as, as you're suggesting. But, um, you know, to your point about specific data that addresses specific concerns, my understanding, because, you know, this has been litigated now and I've read some of the briefing between the city and the TNCs about data, it seems like the concern expressed by the TNCs has been not that they don't want to give you any data, but the city is insisting on like a fire hose of like all data everywhere in real time forever. And that that was just like overly broad as, as we say in, uh, in the legal world. And that, you know, if there were targeted uh, questions you were trying to answer that people might be more willing to respond to a specific request than just insisting that you need everything. And so I'm just wondering, it's obviously a tactic and a decision that the city made to kind of ask for more, not less. And I'm just wondering, is that being reconsidered? Is it just going to be litigated? Or, I mean, it seems like that's um, a large part of the disagreement. Yeah, I think there's a multi-pronged approach, but the first thing I'll say is that I, my understanding, and I've heard this from especially the TNC companies, is that exactly what you said. If you ask for something more specific, we'd, ha we'd be happy to give it to you. And I'll say blanketly that we have done exactly that and also received the same response, which is that we can't, we the TNC companies cannot share that information with you. And so um, I don't really believe that. I, I think that we have done some really great due diligence in, in both this agency and the SFMTA to work collaboratively with the companies. And we've seen some effort to share limited amounts of data, but um, I, I don't think that any amount of data is really uh, willing to be shared with us um, to the degree that they don't have to. Um, I have noticed, though, that Lyft especially has been a little bit more transparent about the work that they've been doing meeting some of our concerns, especially around curb management, double parking, and, and our Vision Zero goals. Um, they just shared with us a blog post on Valencia, and we're right now trying to understand what the data means, and, and we're going to be reaching out to them soon to understand a little bit about what went into their pilot. But comparatively, I noticed that apparently Uber did the same uh, pilot, but is so far unwilling to share any data behind that evaluation. And so I kind of call out people who say, well, if you ask for less, then maybe you get what you're asking for. I don't know if that's always true. Um, but to the litigation component, you know, I'm, I recognize that our city attorney's office is also um, in active conversations with both the companies and the CPUC, but that's not part of my business, and I let them do, you know, what they're going to do. Yeah. 
it, it's sometimes hard to share when you're in the middle of, of litigation. So it's it, it's hard for, for you to, to get everyone uh, to the table under those circumstances. Um, all right, well, let's um, talk about um, another one of the, the takeaways, which was um, the evaluation result that new mobility services might provide opportunities for uh, equitable access to mobility for people who are underserved by current transit options and some recommendations around maybe how mobility services could bridge some gaps. Can you uh, talk a little bit about what the mobility and access gaps have been historically and how you think perhaps mobility services could help? Yeah, um, there's plenty of studies. They're all kind of cited throughout as case studies in this document about um, gaps that we recognize, you know, transit or other actors could improve. One of those is late at night. Um, BART stops running at about midnight, depending on where you are in the region. And people, plenty of people work odd hours. Um, this agency produced a report, excuse me, with the Office of Economic and Workforce Development that documents what we call the other nine to five. And that's, that's a pretty significant gap when you think about how many people are working, you know, these service industry jobs or are working in hotels, cleaning, et cetera, that still need to get home either early, early in the morning or still late at night. And so one of the things that we recognize is that a lot of these emerging mobility services offer um, different kinds of options during that period. And so we want to think, hey, how can we use these as tools to bridge those gaps. Um, similarly, you know, I recognize that there are areas in San Francisco that are less well served by transit, either because of a temporal issue or because of, um, you know, service headways, which is, you know, the time it takes for the next bus to come, et cetera. And so can we use some of these emerging mobility services again as tools to connect people either to a bigger transit hub or to carry them all the way if it's late at night or safer? Um, and so we document some of these examples here in, you know, our, our recommendation, which is called Bridge. Um, so again, you know, identifying opportunities to pilot late-night transportation options. And in fact, we actually want to conduct another equity and disabled access study to think, what are those gaps again? Let's make sure that we're filling them properly with the right tools, whether that's transit, you know, taxis, or emerging mobility services, et cetera. Right. And so are are you thinking that, you know, it might be more cost effective for the city to subsidize some sort of private on-demand service at odd hours of the night when there, you know, there aren't that many people traveling as opposed to running a big bus, you know, very infrequently and, and sort of in a way that's not as convenient for folks? You know, I'm not sure yet. And that's, that's in fact, where these pilots come in is to test out, like, what are the costs associated with something like that? I've seen in other cities that they do exactly that, and so we're, we're looking to our sister cities like Los Angeles and New York. I know Denver and Seattle are doing similar things as well, um, but that's, that's where we want to test these out. I don't think a lot of people really understand the full cost to running a lot of these services, and so I can't say whether or not it's cheaper um, to run a bus or you know, to subsidize something that's listed in this document. Right. I mean, today, if you work uh, at a hotel on Knob Hill and you get off work at one in the morning and you need to get home to the East Bay, let's say, um, mm -hmm. how would you do it using public transit? Is there bus service? There is, in fact, bus service. Um, there's an OWL bus that's the all-nighter bus, um, and so AC Transit runs those services along market, and then they filter out into different portions of the East Bay, roughly along the same BART lines, just on the surface streets instead. Um, and in fact, I've taken that bus myself. It's actually quite convenient and reliable, but I also recognize that, um, you know, not everyone wants to wait for the bus if they've missed it, and sometimes, you know, you're tired and you don't want to be on a bus. I, I get, I do understand that sentiment. Um, and so there are other options. You can car share, you can also take a list if you want to. Um, there are plenty of options. Um, and so it's just a matter of, us working with the businesses and with these companies to figure out like what is the most sustainable, safe, and ideally, you know, most equitable option available for these people. Right. Another evaluation result uh, from your report 
is the question uh, of what the impact is of these new mobility services on public transit. And I think you say that the city really lacks the data to determine at this point whether or not these services are, are helping or, or hurting public transit. Can you tell us what the city has learned so far about the impact of various services on public transit? Yeah, um, you know, I, I mentioned the the BART data earlier, and so I, I don't need to repeat that. But there was a couple of studies done by UC Davis, and also here closely in, at UC Berkeley that demonstrated that people are often choosing um, a lot of these services, but primarily ride-hailing vehicles in place of riding transit. And so, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's faster, it's safer, et cetera. But that's one of the impacts that we're recognizing is that we are losing, in some cases, ridership to these other services. Or in other instances, we're finding that where we should be seeing increased numbers of riders because people are moving to the city or they might be more interested in um, riding transit, they are using these options instead. And so what I would love to do is have each of the companies, in fact, ask their their users, you know, for even just take one trip out of the week for each one of their users to ask them, if my service wasn't available, what would I have done? You know, if this bike share wasn't here, would I have walked? Would I have taken my own bike? Would I have hopped on a bus, etc.? If If I hadn't have taken this lift right now, how would I have made this trip? Because I think that's the answer to that question is paramount to understanding travel behavior is the, like, what would you do if question. Um, yeah. But I think that's really critical. Yeah, I, I, I think those are, are definitely would be really interesting data points to have. I, I think in, in looking at the studies that have been done so far, um, I don't see a lot of data that is specific to time of day and location. I know there's kind of a general um, view that that people are substituting t- TNCs for uh, transit or perhaps making trips they wouldn't have otherwise made. But I feel like it hasn't quite been parsed enough, and this goes to your point about sort of not having enough data. But I I don't feel like, and if you look at the UC Davis study, the the main reasons people use TNCs are to go to restaurants, bars, parties, and family events, which doesn't sound to me like the commute hour. Um, and so it, it feels like people are using um, TNCs perhaps more within the city for, you know, a, a shorter hop ride, maybe occasionally to get to work when they're running late or it's raining or the bus didn't come. But it, it doesn't feel like people are sitting around in the East Bay and saying, hey, I think I'll take an Uber all the way across the Bay Bridge today instead, you know, through all that traffic instead of riding BART. And I don't know, do you have any data that that suggests that kind of commuter rail? I mean, I, I think that you, the UC Davis study said that commuter rail was benefited by TNCs, but that transit within the city had was affected negatively. But is, is there any sense that people are really doing that? Yeah, so I, I actually have two different ways to answer that question. The first is that um, I'll point you to our TNCs Today study. It's available on our website. And it actually demonstrates a really <coughs> great sort of curve about the demand for TNCs, well, not even the demand, the actual ridership of TNCs um, during several months in 2016. And so you can see from the data that we're presenting that the primary uh, demand for TNCs is actually at the peak hours, so between about 8 and 10 a.m., and then again between about 4.30 and 7 p.m. at night. And so while I totally understand that people are using, according to this UC Davis study, you know, for these sort of um, trips to go visit friends or bars or restaurants, a lot more people are using them during the commute hours, and more importantly, they're using them during the commute hours in the most congested parts of the city where we have the most transit service, which is sort of our northeast quadrant of San Francisco, Districts 3 and 10. Um, That's all available on our website, and it's very clearly outlined that that's the case. Um, The second piece, though, is that to double with that information, we again have partnered with MTC to understand, okay, you know, not only do we know when these trips are happening, but let's ask why. Why is it then that we're seeing 
greater amounts of TNC trips at those you know, peak commute hours? Is it because you don't want to take transit? Is it because you, know, you feel uncomfortable, et cetera? So we, re we really want to get to the heart of the, the behavioral model behind that so that hopefully we can create policies or even provide um, initiatives or, or service improvements to our own offerings to help you know, bridge those gaps and ideally help people make more sustainable choices. And what about this whole uh, idea of first mile, last mile? How do you think the city could uh, encourage or test or pilot uh, encouraging uh, emerging mobility services to support transit um, by getting people from their home to a station and then from a station to their office? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a good question, and that's something that we're actively working on right now. I think that it looks a little bit like pilots. I, I'm going to keep saying pilots because I, I love the idea of, of working with the companies, working with other agencies, and us building together. Um, the way it might look is a couple of options, the first of which is you know, encouraging through the permitting power that you know, we redistribute bicycles or now standing scooters or um, whatever other vehicles in these areas that need those connections, right? Um, and then ideally encouraging them to create incentives for people to connect to transit. I know that um, in some other places, TNCs actually offer uh, discounts for riders who are willing to ride to um, you know, transit hubs, and then they also um, provide shuttle systems, et cetera. Uh, so I think that's one option. The other is that you know, on our end, we also control the right-of-way. So one of the ways that we can influence travel behavior whether it's first or last mile or any kind of trip, is by creating the right-of-way that will encourage the behavior that we're looking for, whether that's you know, bicycle lanes and cycle tracks to encourage more people to bicycle, um, you know, producing more safe walkways with um, bulb outs or uh, curb cuts, et cetera. You know, all of those are sort of within the menu of options that we have at our disposal, and it's just a matter of us you know, flexing that muscle to encourage the, the kind of behavior we're looking for. Right. Well, that, that leads us to our final bucket of, of kind of regulation and enforcement and, and pricing as um, other tools that you discuss in your report. Maybe you could talk a little bit um, about some ways the city is thinking about regulating or charging fees to affect behavior. I think one idea has been around uh, curb access, um, how would that work, and, and what are some of your thoughts around that? Sure. Um, I'm going to take actually a step back for just mm -hmm. a second, and I think the high level here is that we want the companies, all emerging mo mobility companies, both the ones that we've permitted already, the ones that might be coming down the pike, and then any future ones that we haven't even thought of yet, that we want them to race to the top, which is why we want to um, harmonize our different permitting systems so that mm -hmm. Ideally, it's a little bit easier to get a permit, and also that it's very clear what you know what the metrics are for success, not just between bike share to bike share, but bike share to you know private transit to scooters, so that across the board, all of these mobility options are being weighed with the same kinds of metrics, tools, etc. So that's step one. Um, the second, though, is that within that regulatory authority, we're trying to shift the companies to, you know, encouraging behavior we're looking for, whether that's um, within the app providing dashboards to the SFMTA so that they can enforce their own um, uh, services or giving us the ability to go in and say, hey, you know, it looks like, you know, this bus is, or, you know, this shuttle is on the wrong street, and so can you please not drive on that street, et cetera. The other um, sort of like subtle nuance about regulation that I just want to highlight is this challenge between what authority, you know, the parking enforcement officers have versus the authority that the police have. Because I think this is something that a lot of people may not fully understand, and I just want to, like, use a moment to highlight it, which is that if a vehicle is parked in the bike lane, if it is parked there and stationary, our parking enforcement officers can issue them a citation. But the moment they move, it is totally outside of their jurisdiction and now becomes a police issue. And so this is one of the challenges that I think people don't fully understand that we're wrestling with is how do we distribute our resources as well as possible and as efficiently as possible, while also recognizing that just by these subtle nuances, they, these challenges might fall into completely different groups of people's jurisdictions or authorities. And that's one of the issues that we're just working on with the companies and with 
other agencies here in San Francisco. Well, that's definitely challenging. Um, how uh, how else are you thinking about um, sort of uh, enforcing or or monitoring some of these services? Uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, parking and, and police. Are there other uh, tools that you're asking companies to try to implement to ease the enforcement uh, burden on the city? Yeah, um, you know, we've been working with the, well, I know that the SFMTA has been working closely with, uh, you know, the TNC companies, and they're now trying to work with the, um, what's called courier network services or the on-demand delivery services like Postmates or Grubhub to develop a, a more broad scheme around prioritizing our curbs. Um, one of the major recommendations here in this paper was about managing our curbs better. You know, I think in most cities we're struggling now to recognize that most of our curb space is allocated towards driving your car, parking it there for some amount of time, paying a small fee, and then leaving. And lately, and, and I think that's what's so amazing about the study, is that we recognize that there's a much greater demand now for curb space, and we need to recognize how do we then allocate that curb space towards more dynamic actors um, in a safe way, and also then price the curb in a way that, that sends the kinds of signals we're looking for. And so that's, that's in fact a study that's happening right now, is a broader curb management strategy. And, and so the Transportation Authority is all too happy to support the SFMTA in that effort. Um, I'm also aware that, uh, as of maybe yesterday or the day before, um, you know, our chair, Peskin, Aaron Peskin, um, has been working with our state legislators to develop a TNC tax. Um, and he, in fact, has negotiated with the companies themselves to, you know, you know use it as a revenue source to help create safer work roads, um, improve our transit service and other offerings. And so that's another opportunity that we're looking for. So I think over the last several um, attended minutes that we've talked about, you know, we've covered a lot of bases in terms of all the different tools that we have at our disposal. We can design the roadway, we can create policies and strategies, we can manage our curves, and then we can also look to our state for new tax measures and different authority. And it's just been this, like, amazing and dynamic environment to work in. Yeah. Well, let's um, let's turn then to uh, the question of scooters and street design, which you've uh, touched on a bit already. Uh, the most recent new mobility service in the city are these stand-up electric scooters. Um, I understand they're sort of not covered in your report because they were introduced after your evaluation period. But um, can you tell us all uh, how it went down with scooters in San Francisco in terms of how they were introduced and then how that led to the the pilot program that is uh, now going to be in place? Sure. Um, I can speak a little bit to it. It's, that is primarily managed at the SFMTA, so I'll, I'll share with you what I know, which is, mm-hmm. you know, several months ago, the scooters launched on our streets um, and you know, to my surprise, I said, oh, look at that. Um, you know, and then there was a lot of confusion as to whose authority it was, and, and then the city tried to respond as quickly as possible to make sure that our sidewalks were clear and that people weren't tripping. On the other side of this, too, that I think people forget is that, you know, the sidewalks are not only used by able-bodied people, but also people in wheelchairs and, you know, strollers, and, and, um, and that that's something that we need to make sure that we're always protecting is, like, access to like basic public right-of-way needs like the sidewalk. Um, and so that, the reason I bring this up is that that was one of the major concerns that prompted the SFMTA to work with um, the rest of the city agencies to actually um, create what's called Division One language to uh, force the companies to have a permit before they could operate on our streets. Um, and so that's as much as I know about that portion of the effort. Yeah. But what's really interesting is that the the permit structure, the application structure that they put out is in line with the guiding principles that we set up. And so it was really exciting on my end, just as a almost a spectator at that point, to read the applications that the companies um, applied, you know, 12 companies applied, and their, their applications were hundreds of pages, but to see them using our guiding principles that we developed last year and adopted as a way to share in a language about how they're going to contribute to the city's transportation system. And, and in looking at the evaluation that the SFMTA t- conducted, it looks like you know, the guiding principles were really a, a great tool towards helping both the city and the companies 
evaluate what our next steps would be in this space and how to select the right companies for our pilots. Yeah. Um, in, you know, I, I, I took a look at, at some of the, the applications and the city's evaluation of it. I think some in the industry were um, a, a little surprised at the uh, weight that seemed to be given to um, the question of compliance with uh, city rules in the sense that, you know, folks who had launched scooters without um, seeking permission from the city were not among the two permits uh, that were granted. Um, how did you feel about that? Did you feel like that was a really significant uh, factor that was in play here? You know, I'm not sure. Uh, I read the applications like everyone else, and it, it looked like there were a lot of different factors that the SFMTA weighed. And, you know, there are so many strong, you know, they, they used fair, strong, and, and poor, you know, as their sort of like, rationale for identifying how they evaluated these different um, strategies. And it looks like across the board, a lot of the companies fared well, and some of them um, just rose to the top. I can't speak really to how the SFMTA decided or, or weighted that, that factor. I, I personally don't think that that was, you know, the overriding consideration above all else. Um, there were plenty of other factors that the SFMTA considered, and you can see that in the mountains of paperwork that they distributed for their evaluation. Right. So, um, you know, I think there are kind of two aspects to the city's decision that surprised people. One was only awarding two permits when they could have gone up to five. And it, it seemed like in some of the city commentary that they ascribed that in part to each, wanting each company to have a sufficient number of scooters. But the other is just the the total scooter permit, you know, being limited to I think twelve hundred and fifty in the first six months, and then going up to twenty five hundred. It seems like not very many, um, you know, compared to a place like Santa Monica, which has a much smaller population, or compared to what LA just authorized, which I think is ten thousand five hundred per company for bikes and scooters. So. Um, what are your thoughts around um, limiting the number of permit holders, limiting the number of devices as you, you know, try to encourage this idea of pilots and permits and working with the city? Um, why is constraining supply like that kind of the best approach from the city's perspective? That's a good question. Um, I think I, I wasn't a particip participant in that effort, um, so I, I can't say for certain why the MTA chose that number. Um, but I also recognize that our broad goal is to start small and build from there. And so, you know, I respect the fact that the MTA wants to make sure that we have everything right, especially given the tens of thousands of complaints that they received in a matter of two or three weeks. I, I think, you know, I understand that people really want new, exciting mobility services, but like I said a couple minutes ago, it's our main goal to make sure that the streets are safe and, more importantly, that the sidewalks are safe. Um, and so I think, without speaking for the MTA and their good work, you know, this is a one-year pilot. We want to make sure that we get this right and that we start slow and that, you know, the pilot terms allow for the number to go up from there. Um, who can say what happens after those terms? And I hope that the companies continue to engage, you know, the companies that didn't receive permits continue to engage with the city and, and work towards their shared vision for launching in San Francisco. But to that end, um, I also recognize that we have to work on, you know, as I said before, collaborating and, and following the rules that are in place. Um, it was not a good experience to have a lot of people yelling and being very frustrated that they couldn't get into their home sometimes because mountains of scooters were piled up. And that's, those are the kinds of constraints that we just have to weigh against these other challenges. Yeah, it's, um, it, it, it's an interesting challenge. It seemed like the complaints stemmed from two areas. One is the parking point of people leaving the scooters on sidewalks, which it seems like with innovation and multiple companies working on the problem and trying to come up with good solutions that this industry should be able to solve that 
uh, problem. I think the second, <laughs> the, the, you know, it, it takes some time for people to learn from how you, user behavior, uh, you know, plays out. And so, you know, companies try to learn from those experiences, I think, as they go. And obviously, uh, that's challenging from the city's perspective. The other issue was riding. And um, perhaps we can talk a little bit about street design here as well. But it seemed like people, and I know from my own perspective, um, people don't feel safe riding a scooter um, on city streets. I myself don't feel safe riding a scooter on city streets. I also don't feel safe riding a bicycle on city streets. Um, and so mm -hmm. I think people are riding on sidewalks because there aren't protected mobility lanes for bikes and scooters. And, you know, this is another kind of chicken and egg thing where, you know, the city doesn't know that there's demand for this kind of a lane and, and a protected riding experience until scooters and e-bikes come along and suddenly a lot more people are interested in, you know, this type of mode. Um, how does the city respond and can you create protected mobility lanes for bikes and scooters? How do you think about that? I know you already, you know, had a lot of projects on tap for um, different streets just from for bicycles. Um, how do you how do you move forward with this and, and what should we as citizens expect to see on the streets in terms of accommodating uh, new modes? Wow, that's a lot of questions. Um, I think I'll start at the beginning, which is that, you know, when, when I spoke with a lot of the scooter companies and I said, hey, you know, we could sure use your help in this. Please share data about where your users are riding so that we understand where these lanes need to go. They said, oh, not sure if we can give that to you. And so that's one of the challenges, right, is that I've circled back again, that it is to the company's benefit in many of these cases to provide us even the most basic information that they're right now not willing to share. Like, if I were a scooter company, the first thing I'd do is say, hey, in the time period that we were operating in San Francisco, these are the five major corridors that we saw the biggest level of traffic using our scooters, and these two don't have bike facilities. We want to commit you know, our time and energy and even some money, perhaps, to helping provide you know, safe bicycle infrastructure and, you know, as you said, shared mobility infrastructure on these streets. Um, one of the things, and this is actually in our recommendation package, is that we recognize as a city that we may need to redesign some of our streets. Our bike lanes are only but so wide, and they are designed for bikes, but maybe we need to make them wider or designed a little bit differently for scooters and e-bikes. And, you know, I've seen in other companies, they have mopeds and bike lanes, which is fantastic. Um, so that's part of it, right? The other side of it, though, is that I encourage the companies to actively engage about street design. Right now, you know, I've, it's funny, I've, just in the two years that I've been working with them, I've seen their strategy change pretty significantly from, you know, sending lawyers to have conversations about, you know, what their rights are versus sending city planners on their behalf to say, I think there should be a buffered bike lane here. And I think that latter strategy is a really great way to proactively pursue what, you know, their ultimate goals are here in San Francisco and, and quite frankly, throughout the country and a lot of other major cities. Um, so that's, that's, I think, what I'll say on that. Yeah, it, you know, San Francisco politics are always a little bit crazy and hard to figure out. I have to say I've been super taken aback by people who have held themselves out to be bicycling advocates or uh, transit advocates and telling everyone they should get out of their cars, but who then came out really strongly against scooters. And I thought, gosh, you know, shouldn't you be recruiting the scooter people, you know, the bike people and the scooter people, if you all get together, <laughs> you know, it seems like, you know, work with the city and come up with some protected lanes that everybody should be rowing in the same direction um, to get people out of their cars and that this kind of should be something that the city should support and the bicycle people should support and, and, and industry should support. And so it seems like everyone has the same goal and yet everyone's still butting heads on this. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on, 
on how the industry can kind of move forward, as you said, with the these ideas for street design? Like, what's the best forum for that? Yeah, right. Um, you know, you hit the nail right on the head. Um, I I noticed when I first reached out to the companies that we are what I've said is sort of like 80% aligned. It sounds like, yeah, you know, we should reduce single occupancy vehicle trips. We should get people moving again. We should reduce congestion. We should increase safety. But it's, it's that how component and like when that is that last 20% that I think people get hung up on. And I've, I've noticed though that in just the time that I've been working on this, that it feels like there's a little bit of a shift that, that we are starting to work together more closely on these issues. You know, when I started this, this effort, we didn't really have many connections with most of the companies. They, some of them had just started, whereas now I can say very strongly that we have a really collegial relationship with most all of the emerging mobility companies, and we can at least share in our frustrations and, and try and work towards these common goals. Um, unfortunately, sometimes at timelines that are a little slower than the companies would like, but at the same time, we want to make sure that as you know, your government officials that we're being thoughtful about our decisions and not working haphazardly. Um, but but I totally hear you, Michelle. That it's you know sometimes it feels like we're we're all rowing in the right direction and and yet there's still conflict. Um, but I'm I'm hopeful that we're we're getting through that together. All right, final question. This is my <laughs> new political pet peeve, and you have to help me with this. What does it take to remove on-street parking spots in a commercial downtown, the financial district, south of Market? I, you know, when I look at Montgomery and Sansom and Battery Streets and Howard and in these streets that are so congested with so many folks competing for space on the right of way, you know, how is it that we're letting people park their cars there? There are garages all over the place that are half empty where people could park their cars. What 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 does it take in San Francisco? <laughs> Um, that's, that's a great question, and it's, um, it's funny because I just met with um, some folks from Postmates and from DoorDash a couple days ago, and they were saying the exact same thing, but that they're having some really great luck by engaging with the merchants and saying, hey, you know, I see that you've got these parking spaces out here. What are, what are you using them for? And they say, oh, you know, all of our customers are coming from those three parking spaces. Our 100 customers in this restaurant are from those three parking spaces. And it's like, no, they're not. But... Uh, <laughs> when you show them really interesting data points, like actually, you know, so like Lyft does this really well. They provide their Lyfty awards every year to um, demonstrate, you know, where the most rides were for restaurants and parks and, and a couple mm-hmm. of other like museums around the city. And, and so they've been able to engage with, you know, the business owners about like what's actually happening on the curb and saying, or, or rather dispelling some of the, the, I don't know if it's rumors, but misinformation about how people are actually traveling. Um, and very fortunately, before this job and the one I had before, I helped manage um, a parking pricing program in the city of Berkeley and conducted a lot of business outreach and found that a lot of owners believe that all of their customers are driving to their businesses. And it turns out, once you ask the people who are parked in front of them, a lot of the cars are actually other owners of other businesses on that street and people who are working there. And so one of the things that we did was we tried to encourage the employees of those areas to take transit and other modes of transportation to free up some of those spaces. That being said, the other options, this is now fast forward 10 years, right? There's so many more options and much better data around the use of the curb and a a much more dynamic curb at that, that I think we're in such an amazing place to really show, you know, residents, business owners, and communities how awesome and dynamic their curb could be that can move people and not just be necessarily a, a place for vehicle storage for one or two people at a time. Um, but to answer your question, I'm not, I don't have the, the silver bullet to, you know, changing uh, parking spaces into commercial loading or, or what have you, but I, I'm hopeful that we're moving in the right direction towards, you know, a more um, dynamic people and customer focused approach. Well, I'll show that I'm not in politics by saying, I, I guess I'm not sure why individual business owners can hold up the use of public space, right? It seems like the city can make that decision. And, you know, uh, I, I, I feel like at some level, um, you know, 
you just have to move forward and try things. You know, here's one of your pilot programs. Take away some parking spaces. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send all of the calls I get to you, and then <laughs> you can take those. Exactly. <laughs> but, but you're right. I'm, I'm interested to see what happens with our pilots, for sure. That's, it's going to be fun, I think. Great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time today to talk through all these issues with us. It was really informative. Yeah, and thanks for having me. This has been fun. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah. Thanks again to Warren for joining us. You can find the show notes for this episode and all of our episodes on the Smarter Cars publication at medium.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.